Why would sake breweries begin popping up all over America? What do we really know about sake, and how can we learn more? We talk with Nan Wallace of Wetlands Sake. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Nan Wallace, co-founder and CEO of Wetland Saki in New Orleans. Welcome, Nan. Thank you, Liz. I'm happy to be here with you today. So let's talk a little bit about how you came to create Wetland Saki. This goes back now about three and a half years that my business partner, Lindsay Beard, and I have been working on this project. And we were out having dinner one night and referencing the fact that we both love sake and sort of lamenting the fact that New Orleans isn't really a market where there are lots of choices for sake. So I had been traveling in New York City, and I had been to Chicago. I'd been out in San Francisco. I'd been to a bunch of different markets that the sake industry was is much more robust. And, and so you have choices of many, many, many different sakes, and it was on French dining menus. It was on Italian dining menus. It was in burger joints, and you could mm-hmm. find sake everywhere. And so as I kept noticing that happening in more and more urban centers, I uh, came back and was speaking with Lindsay and was just like, you know, I just love sake and it's available in other markets in every type of restaurant, in bars. And I said, New Orleans is a little bit behind the scene. And, and I was saying to her how some nano breweries were starting to pop up in other parts of the country. She goes, that's funny, somebody should do a brewery in Louisiana. And I said, I know, because we're the land of rice. Right. We're the third largest rice-growing state in the United States. Plus all that rice from other states that comes through here to get shipped out. And so we we do. And we also contribute a lot of rice to other breweries that are making beer. We do. And few of them are using Louisiana rice. It's interesting. Um, they tend to, like you said, bring rice in from other markets. As you know, California is a big rice market, number one. Arkansas is the second largest market. And then Louisiana is third. But our feeling was that because we have rice so readily available mm-hmm. and we're in Louisiana, it would be a great market to have a sake brewery. So you basically saw the fact that we didn't have something as an opportunity. Absolutely. And then saw how fast it was starting to just to change five years ago or six years ago. You wouldn't have seen sake on so many different menus when you were traveling. And I think it just all of a sudden sake is going to have a moment. So what kind of background do you have that would make you embrace opening a brewery? I do not have any brewing background Uh or liquor background, but I do come out of an entrepreneurial background. I've owned other businesses and grown them and then sold them. I've come out of the healthcare sector. I've had a consulting business. I've had a headhunting business. 
but the in the idea of being able to build something on the early stage, the sake movement will be very much like the craft beer movement was. When you saw the craft brewing movement evolve, the brewery movement, they started popping up a few at a time and then more and more in different markets. And now there are many, 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 as you know, craft beer breweries around the United States. And sake, I would say... Five years ago, there were probably five or six, you know, breweries, and today we have close to 20. There are about 18 throughout the United States. Hmm. So do you think that because the craft brewery movement was kind of established already and there are laws that reflect certain aspects of what what they produce and how they sell it and all of that, that, that made it easier for you, or did they have to craft specific laws for you? I don't think it made it any easier, honestly, but I do. It, it's interesting because sake is so new, mm-hmm. and there's so little of it being produced in the United States. Most of our sake in the United States comes from Japan, as you know, so the amount actually being produced in the United States is still very tiny. Some, because no one knows what to do with sake, none of the state agencies that control liquor know sort of how to deal with sake. (laughs) So in some markets, we're considered beer, and we fall under beer licensure. And in some markets, we fall under wine, and you need wine licensure. And that's just a lack of having a specific category to put us in Mm -hmm. and deciding which each state decides which category it sort of fits better in. And what does Louisiana decide? Louisiana um, has us as a beer brewery. So so why is it, if it is really more wine than beer, or is it really more wine than beer? But that's the second question. Why is it that we call sake production a brewery? So it is much more similar to beer brewing than it is to winemaking. So it's a misnomer when people call sake rice wine, mm-hmm. is that it is not. And we don't use any, it's a grain product, mm-hmm. just like beer, beer is. is. Mm-hmm. So, and the fermentation process is probably more similar to beer than wine, although it is unique in and of itself. We have a cold fermentation process. Sake is all made cold. And the only hot part of making sake is steaming the rice and making a food grade mold spore. We use a mold spore on steamed rice that we actually grow food grade mold that's used in like soy and miso and things like that. For fermentation? Yes, for fermentation. So that's called koji. And it would be like starting, it's a starter for the fermentation to turn the, the sugars into alcohol. And so sake ferments f- for about four weeks. It's about a 26 to 30 day fermentation process, kept cold the whole time. And then when we're finished, we, we're testing every day. We're doing lab numbers so we can tell where the alcohol is, where the sugar is, things like that. And when we think the sake is ready, we press it. We have a very large hydraulic press that actually presses all the sake out of the rice. And then that that product do, goes into a, a settling tank, and we let any other little particles settle. And then we store it and pasteurize. But all that is kept cold. And the reason we pasteurize our sake is we're putting them in cans, 
and they have to be shelf stable not only for the markets we are in in Louisiana. We're in grocery stores, we're in liquor stores, we're in bars, restaurants, music venues, uh, all throughout the state. So we have to pasteurize to make sure it's shelf stable. But also, as we go into other markets, it definitely needs to be shelf stable. Shelf stable. And you're distributed by people who can distribute beer? Yes, we are um, being distributed by Southern Eagle, and they are a beer distributor. We could also work with a full liquor distributor who had the rights to distribute beer as well. Mm-hmm. So. so so, how long have you been open now? So we went into the brewery. We had to build the brewery to facilitate, you know, we retrofitted and we built out what we needed we have about 7,000 square feet brewery space. We had to buy the equipment and all that kind of stuff. So we got into the brewery in July of 2020. And So this is a COVID business. It is a COVID business. It's been very challenging because of COVID and because of Ida. And those two things combined have certainly made it more challenging and slowed our, our progress. But we feel like we have held in there pretty well and people have been very supportive. But we got in in July of 2020. Our first products went out to the Louisiana market in March, the beginning of March of 2021. So we've been on shelves for a, a little over a year now. Mm-hmm. And then we waited to open our tap room, which we really had planned to open right at the beginning. But there was no reason to open it of with course not. COVID yes. flaring. Mm-hmm. So we held off opening up the tap room. During this past summer of 2021, when things looked like they might open up a little bit, we started thinking about it again, only to figure out with Ida and all the other things that had occurred, resources weren't available. You couldn't get chairs or tables, you couldn't find carpet, and you couldn't get people to come in and do the work. So we really just opened our tap room in February of this year, of 2022. We finally got all the equipment we needed for the bar area, all the refrigeration, the sinks, all the basic things you need. Our taps, you know, to just get a tap system was, was really challenging. So we have nine sakes on tap in the tap room, and we needed tap and refrigeration equipment. For all of that, Sure. So we finally got all that done. We had our grand opening right at the beginning of March, and we were pleasantly surprised that we had it on a Tuesday night from like 4 to 9, and we had 700 people show up at the grand opening. And, you know, that was all people we didn't really know. We had been marketing on social media, and people had written about it for us. But all of a sudden, we had all these people show up for our grand opening, which we were thrilled by. So since then, we have a pretty steady stream of people coming in to try our sakes. That's really wonderful. So tell us a little bit about the different styles of sake and how you decided which ones you were going to work on. Okay. So we in we have two different Products, basic, not products, but we have two different sides to our business. So we have the production side, which we're putting in single-serve cans. Mm-hmm. And we did that for very specific reasons. They're eco-friendly. They can be recycled. That's part of our mission. We give part of our profits to Save America's Wetlands. So we wanted 
to not have a large footprint mm-hmm. and be eco-friendly. So the cans were for that. We think it makes the sake more accessible to people who don't know a lot about sake. Mm-hmm. They don't have to invest in a full bottle of sake to figure out what they're drinking. They can buy a can of sake. And and how many ounces is the can? The traditional sake. So we have two traditional sakes in cans. We have a filtered and an unfiltered. Mm-hmm. They are eight ounces each, and they're 14% alcohol. By volume? By volume. Mm-hmm. ABV. And so on the we have two additional products, which are we have sparkling sake, and we're the first brewery to come out in the United States with a sparkling sake. Mm-hmm. So we have two flavored sakes. They're in 12-ounce cans, and the ABV on those is 6.5%. So they're lower alcohol. They're flavored. One is um, blood orange, and one is passion fruit. And people seem to love those. They're embracing them. So that's the production side and what we put out into the marketplace for retail sale. In the tap room, what we have is we had a different concept that we really wanted to work on. We weren't sure how many people would continue coming back to try two different sakes. Like if you put two filtered sakes, which would be considered junmai in mm-hmm. Japan, we weren't sure if people come back and go, oh, well, there's nuance between these two sakes, and we think, you know, put them side by side, and you hope they could figure out the difference in the taste. Most people are not that familiar with sake. So we thought we needed a little different concept than that. We're really excited about it because I think we're the only brewery in the United States doing that. But we put all of our sakes on tap, and what we do is we have – a filtered, which is traditional, that would be a Junmai. We have an unfiltered, which is a traditional sake that would be like a Nagori in Japan. And then we have, and we have two sparklings. They're not the same flavors as in the cans, mm-hmm. but we're always rotating them. So we offer new offerings in the tap room that are not in cans yet. Mm-hmm. And then we have sake cocktails. Now, remember, we're not a bar, mm-hmm. and we can't serve any liquor in our tap room other than what we produce in the brewery. So the way we make our cocktails is with our sake, our filtered sake, and we work with a mixologist who helps us create bases for the sake, mm-hmm. and then we blend them with our filtered sake in the brewery, but then we tap them. So we have things like we have a saccharita. Tastes very much delicious, soft because of the sake, but like a margarita. Mm-hmm. We have a espresso saccatini, so you get that espresso martini vibe. Uh huh. And we have one that's somewhat like a mojito. Uh huh. But the most popular one in the brewery at the moment is blueberry lemon sake, and people come in and we do tasting boards, tasting trays. And so of the nine sakes we have on tap, you can pick any four you want and put them into a, like a flight. A flight. Uh-huh. And so it's keeping people coming back because we are switching the flavors all the time. We're switching the types of cocktails. We're serving the types of drink. Like we just put a, what's called a tap room 75 on the menu. would mm-hmm. be somewhat like a French 75, but made with fresh grapefruit juice. And fresh, and then some, like an elderberry uh, cordial, and uh, mixed together with mm-hmm. the sake. Mm-hmm. And then we have a 
strawberry balsamic sake coming out soon because of all the strawberries from Ponchatoula. Oh, yes. And I can even imagine using some of the sparkling sake and something like a michelada or something Absolutely. like that. <laughs> I think people are doing all kinds of things. Out in the bars where they're carrying our sake, a lot uh-huh. of them are using the sparkling to to make really creative cocktails. So that's been kind of fun to see what everybody's posting. So that's been very well received. People come back and they get excited about the fact that we have a new flavor, you know, a uh-huh, new, something a new, new to cocktail. try. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's worked quite well. And so are you doing any kind of sake education to have people know, especially know about traditional ways that sake has been drunk? Right. So we have not, since we only opened in March, mm, we yes. had our opening in March, more in April, we haven't had time to do that yet. But our intention is to do sake 101 type classes. And also we would try to bring in an expert in sake who hopefully will be able to not just have you come in and try our sake, but bring other sakes with them that they can talk about the whole talk about Japanese sakes as well as some of the other American sakes in addition to ours. So yeah. those kind of things we'll start doing programming, mm-hmm. and, and we will have that at the actual brewery space. And so in Japan, if you know the answer to this, do they ever age the sake? They do, and that is becoming a little more common now in Japan uh-huh. than it was. But it really takes a sake brewery that's one of the bigger ones to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be prepared to to spend the money to brew, to have the space to store it, and to really hold on to it for some time. Mm-hmm. So some of the breweries that are aging and holding sakes are, as you taste them, it's really interesting. They get a little bit more like a cognac or you know an after-dinner drink of mm-hmm. sorts that mm-hmm. would be a little bit more brandy-like, but it's not a common thing that you would just go in and try and find an aged sake to to drink. To drink. And so does the aged sake have a higher ABV? I'm actually not sure about that. Uh, I would think they make it similar in the same way, but they're um, storing it different. But I actually don't know the answer. It would be interesting to know if it evaporates enough water that – but, you know, the alcohol can evaporate too. So you, so they bottle it and store it, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that impacts the ABV or not. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't. So and when you come into our tap room, because you're talking about ABV, we actually post the ABV for each different sake we make. So mm-hmm. people know when they're ordering how strong or not strong the the particular drink they're having or the traditional sake and there's a whole range of them. We have everything from 6% to 14.5%. And each cocktail has a different ABV. And we well, want to make sure people know that. Know what they're doing, yeah. yes. But also it's interesting when you start mixing it with non-alcoholic things, it's going to reduce the ABV of the drink it itself. Does. So It uh, does. Because you, you aren't able to mix it with spirits which has a much higher ABV, but it sounds like the creativity is really there. So it would have a lot of flavor. And, you know, if you're just drinking for flavor as opposed to 
knock yourself out, right. then that's a pretty good thing. Right. We have a couple of 14 and a halfs that can do a good job on the knock yourself <laughs> out. But, but on the other ones, they're very, very delicious. I think people are surprised, but we are using all natural ingredients. So everything that goes into them, it's fresh grapefruit juice. It's fresh um, blueberries, fresh lemon juice, fresh lavender juice. We have a spicy paloma. And the spice in that is a chili de arbol. And Mm. they actually cook, you know, roast the chilies and then squeeze them. And we use fresh grapefruit juice and fresh lime juice with that. So when you mix it with the sake, it really, it's delicious. It sounds like it. So so you were talking about sustainability and environmental uh, concerns. What do you do with the leftover rice? That's a great question because we really thought about that long and hard. Uh-huh. The leftover rice after you press the sake out is called kasu. And in Japan, they use kasu for many, many things. They marinate meats and chicken and fish with it. They cook with it. They make rice uh, crackers. They're, they make cosmetics because it has all the minerals and really healthy stuff from the rice still in there and mm-hmm. you have the sake that's fermented in the the malt spore etc so it's used in many 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 ways in japan and they sell it the breweries can sell it we don't have the ability to sell ours because we're not fda approved to do that etc and so what we wanted to make sure everybody who walks in and looks at our production area, has an idea for us of what to do with the kasu. And I'm always like, look, it's right here. If you call me and you want some, as long as you pick it up the same day as we press, you can have it for free, and you go do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're concentrating mm-hmm. on sake. right? But we have a farmer who goes by the name Reverend. He is a reverend, but he also raises heifers. Uh-huh. And so when the reverend, the reverend comes in every time we press, because it's a lot of kasu, it's a lot of barrels, and he comes in and he brings a trailer and he picks up all the kasu and he takes it to his heifers. And he tells me that the girls are relaxed and happy. <laughs> and he says the meat that he gets from the heifers is the most tender meat he's ever had and says his butcher says it's the most tender meat wants to know what his secret is and so i said well reverend in japan they use kasu to marinate things from the outside in i said i think what you're doing with heifers is you're marinating them from the inside out and he goes, I think you're right. I said, don't tell anybody your secret because I don't have enough for anyone else. You know? <laughs> so anyway, we have a system set up. So there's really no waste in a sake brewery. It's interesting. have a lot of trash. We have very little trash. Well, I think in Japan, that's a tradition. They didn't ever waste. I mean, we're the wasters. <laughs> Correct. They do not waste in Japan. And they use it, like I said, you incredible cosmetics are made with uh, sake kasu creams and lotions and you know they do so much stuff with it and then they do a lot of cooking with it but we're just not set up to do that and it's big been a big undertaking to produce sake for us since that's not really our background Mm -hmm. and learn the process it's been a a big learning curve Mm -hmm. so taking on what to do with the kasu other than be happy that the reverend comes and picks it up for the heifers would be a 
probably not doable at this time. Well, it seems like it's going to a good purpose. And per- so, perfect. You know, why would you worry about it? I'm after not. That? <laughs> we're thrilled about it. I mean, it's been a great relationship. He's happy. We're happy. We give it to him, obviously. We don't charge him for the kasu. But it also is removed, which is also a good thing. Because uh, then you would have to deal with it. I would. And yes. so that is good. And that was why we set the relationship up. He's We've been at this as long as we've been producing. He's been coming to get the casus. So since really we started brewing in 2020. So what kind of production do you have? How many, I don't know what you're measuring it in, in cans, in gallons, and what are, what are our, you measuring in your production in? Our tanks are... 3,000 liters a piece, and that's about 800 gallons. And we have four tanks going at all times. And we are on a seven-day work week with shifts. Mm -hmm. Everybody has different days off. One, you have to tend to the sake a little bit more, but two, to keep the production going on a uh, rolling basis. Right. Mm-hmm. We we have the the production area open seven days a week. The tap room's actually not open seven days a week. It's open Wednesday through Sunday, but the production area is there. And when you come in our um, tap room, Liz, which I want you to do, mm-hmm. when you're sitting in the room, which is beautiful, we glass the whole wall that looks into the production facility. So you can always see interesting things going on while you're having your cocktail with what they're doing with the rice and when the rice is steaming and when they're making koji. We have koji rooms that we glassed as well, a bit put a big window in them so you could see what was going on because it's really an interesting process. The press will be working or they'll be stirring tanks. So it's kind of interesting to see all that. That's why we decided people would enjoy seeing it while they were enjoying the sake. Yeah, I I think it's really fun. It's it's even fun to watch people make beignets and <laughs> and pralines. So yes. this would be even more fun. <laughs> exactly. And then recently we put in an outdoor area during right when we were trying to open the tap room. We just decided we didn't know what the future of COVID was, <clears throat> and if we were going to have any other shutdowns or not, or if people still were going to be reluctant to come indoors. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you know, there's really been a trend of everyone loving to be outdoors. You know, Louisiana and New Orleans now has more, I think, outdoor venues than we've ever had, and which is a great thing. I love sitting outdoors too. So we put in outdoor space in the front of the brewery when we were doing the tap room. So we have pergolas and we have um seating on our on our outdoor porch as well as in the pergola area and we have been hosting music we've done it twice so far where we had a band come and play and people come and we set up the outside and you can get we brought a crawfish truck in and the commissary's cooked and so we've done some fun parties like that but we're getting ready to start hosting music on Thursday nights, we're going to have a regular night where we host smaller bands. And you can come and sit outside and enjoy either just the sake or enjoy the commissary food. They serve wine as well. So we are thinking the outdoor space is going to be something more and more people will gravitate mm-hmm. towards. Mm-hmm. I, it sounds sounds like great fun. 
So are you only <laughs> distributing right now in the New Orleans area? How far out into Louisiana are you going? No, we're in Louisiana. We're in Lake Charles and up in the Lafayette markets, et cetera. And then we really have sort of done central to south Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And and that's going really well. Like we're in all, all those markets. It's in grocery store again, grocery stores, liquor stores, and bars and restaurants. So we've been well received, and people are drinking it. I mean, the community is is liking it. When we go out now to, we're growing our rice in Crowley, mm-hmm. and at the Louisiana Rice Research Station, which is actually in rain technically. Mm-hmm. But when we go out to visit them now, at the beginning, they were scratching their head like, what are these crazy women doing? And now we go out and we bring sake with us to say, okay, this is the latest batch. And, I mean, everyone comes in from the fields now. So they've all learned about sake, and they're all really proud of what they're helping us do. Because I'm not sure I told you that, but we are using Louisiana rice, and it is a unique rice. Louisiana does not grow short grain rice in the state. And when I scratched my head on that and asked why, they were like, because people want to eat long grain rice. So we So grow, it's a demand issue. It's a demand issue. So we grow long grain rice and sake is typically made with short grain rice. And the reason it's made with short grain rice is be it can be medium grain as well, but it's typically short grain in Japan. And the reason for that is it as you're milling the rice, what you're trying to do is mill all the protein and lipids and things off the exterior of the rice that's held in the bran mostly. So you have to get rid of enough of the bran to remove that to make good sake. So we, when we were looking for a short grain rice, it was quite challenging because LSU was like, we just don't grow that. You mm-hmm. know, We don't grow short grain rice. We can't help you. And I was like, no, I think let's keep trying. So at some point they called me and they go, we have the perfect rice for you. And I was like, really? I've been up there a lot. And you kept saying you don't. And they said, we have a rice called Piro. And I said, you're pulling my leg. And they're like, <laughs> no, no. And I said, how could it be called Piro? We created the strain of rice and we get to call it what whatever we want. We want yeah. And we called it Piro. And I said, okay. And so here we are with Piro rice. But the trick was that I didn't realize when I was on the phone with them is they had the seed for the rice, but they had never grown the rice. Uh-huh. So it did take, uh, that's why we've been at this three and a half years. We were, we grew a small batch of rice, which was like 7,000 pounds at the beginning. Cause you then have to take that and, you, and use it as seed for the next rice. So we're now growing 230,000 pounds of Piro rice a year. Wow. So it, the facility where you are now, does it have the potential for a greater capacity, or are you operating at capacity in the space? We could double in size capacity-wise. Okay. So okay. we have enough room to add extra tanks and and stay in that space, and it would take adding more brewers. Sure, sure. And then are you thinking eventually to move outside of Louisiana or like to the Mississippi Gulf Coast or someplace in Mississippi or Texas? or Probably not Mississippi. We've looked at the markets pretty extensively throughout uh-huh. the United States, and we have them ranked as far as the, the next best 
right? Location. So we're in discussions at the moment in Texas mm-hmm. and in Georgia. Okay. And I think one of those will probably be our next state, and I would think that's very soon. Wow. So tell us where you are and how people can go online and see you. Awesome. We are at 634 Orange Street, and Orange Street is right off of Chapatulas. It only runs, obviously, away from the river towards Magazine, and we're about half a block off of Chapatulas. Our facility is beautiful. We have outdoor space. We have porch space. We open. We have a big garage door we open up, and so people are welcome to come. You can get on – we're on Facebook – and Instagram, but you can also get on our website at wetlandssake.com. It's two S's for wetlands and then the sake, so two S's in the middle. And that has our hours for our tap room. It has what our, what things are actually on tap, what sakes are on tap at the moment. It will give you events we're hosting. We hosted, we've hosted two wine and cheese pairings with St. James Cheese Company mm-hmm. of late. And that's going so sake and cheese, right? Sake <laughs> and cheese. But it's gone over very well. People have been really excited about it and embraced that. So that's been fun. So we're trying to do some different and fun events that will always be posted on our website. We always shoot them out via Instagram, et cetera, for the social media crowd. Sounds wonderful. Thank you, Nan, so much for being here. This has just been a great education about sake and about what's up in Louisiana. And thanks so much. Great, Liz. Thank you so much for having me today. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.